If you like what you hear on this episode, you're going to want to come check out my new podcast called the Unfuck Your Brain Podcast. What you're listening to right now, The Lawyer's Stress Solution, has ceased production of new episodes. But Unfuck Your Brain is rocking and rolling. Every week, I release a new episode of the Unfuck Your Brain podcast, teaching you the same great tools for taming your brain, but with even more applications to other areas of your life. You can search for it by name. Remember, there's an asterisk instead of the U in unfuck because we like to be polite. Or just click the link to it in the podcast description for this show. I'll see you over there. You're listening to The Lawyer Stress Solution, the only podcast that teaches you cognitive science-based techniques specifically created for lawyers. Learn how to manage your lawyer brain and conquer the stress, anxiety, and overwhelm of lawyer life. Here's your host, former lawyer and certified master coach, Kara Lowenthal. Good morning, everyone. I'm recording this on a Monday, and I'm just thinking about all the lawyers out there who maybe drank a little too much this weekend or used drugs this weekend and are feeling slow this morning and wishing it wasn't a Monday and wishing that they could get their shit together, right? That they could get through the weekend without using substances and feeling hungover, that they could approach the work week without looking forward already to when they could have a drink. So as you can guess, the subject of this topic today is substance abuse. I've gotten a ton of emails this week about the New York Times article on lawyers and addiction. I've had clients freaking out at 1 a.m. that they have to quit their jobs so they don't become heroin addicts. So listen to me really carefully. Being a lawyer does not make you a drug addict. In this episode, I'm going to explain what does contribute to substance abuse and how you can deal with your substance use without quitting your job. But important disclaimer first, since we're all lawyers, I am not a medical professional. I am not talking to those of you who are truly addicted to substances and who are in need of medical intervention to safely quit their usage. If that is you, you should seek professional medical help. And whatever state bar you're in, I can almost guarantee that your state bar has a sort of lawyers helping lawyers type group where people are ready and willing and able to help you, uh, lawyers who are already in recovery, who do have expertise in this area, and who can connect you to treatment and resources. So if that's you, that's what you need to do. This podcast is not for you. I mean, you can feel free to listen to it, but this podcast is really for those of you who are using substances more often than you want to and would like to better understand why you're doing that and how you can cut back or stop, but who are not going to be in any physical danger from reducing or eliminating your substance use. So let's start with that article. If you haven't read it, you can find it in the New York Times. I'll just recap. It's basically a story written by a woman about her ex-husband who died of a drug overdose, who was a lawyer. And the story talks a little bit about what his life and career were like, and a little bit about the problems of substance abuse among lawyers, and suggests that there's a sort of hidden secret epidemic among lawyers of drug use, and that while drinking is fairly heavily reported and probably occurs even more than that, drug use is very underreported and under-talked about in the lawyer community, not only because of the normal reasons that people underreport their use, like shame, 
but also because lawyers take particular oaths to uphold the law and so are much less likely to report illegal actions like drug use, depending on the drug in most states. So here's what the article gets right. Substance abuse in law is a widespread problem, right? It's the number one cause of disbarment for lawyers, whether it's substance use directly or it's the kinds of mistakes or malpractice or crimes like embezzlement or fund shifting that lawyers tend to make if they get really deep into a substance problem. The second thing the article gets right is that legal education and practice are part of what make lawyers vulnerable to substance abuse. I've always said that law school fundamentally changes how you think. And my personal theory is that in teaching you to be part of the adversarial process and to argue any side, law school specifically focuses on divorcing you from your values, right? I was once told in a law school property class at our one of our nation's very top leading law schools when I made a comment about the distributive consequences of law and economics I was told that, quote, stamping my feet and asserting moral inadequacy of something was not an appropriate response in law school. You know, I think that's a perfectly appropriate response in any field (laughs) to be concerned about distributive consequences. But the point is, that's a perfect example of the ways in which law school pedagogy really teaches you to take a step back from the things you care about or value, right? And to see those values, to see emotional values as being sort of weak and second order and non-rigorous, right? And teaches you to really focus much more on things like the logical purity of an argument as opposed to what impacts your position might have in the real world. And, you know, obviously, I don't think law professors are sociopaths. (laughs) I almost was a law professor. Many of my good friends are law professors. But the way that legal pedagogy is set up in general and the things that it prioritizes produce that outcome, right? Especially when it is actually true that you need to be able to argue different sides as a lawyer. And when a lot of especially top law schools are built to feed into large law firms where people are going to be doing work that may or may not be sort of emotionally meaningful or in line with their values, right? Obviously, some firms are doing amazing work that is in line with their associates and partners' values. At some places, people are working for clients that they might otherwise not want to. Now, that's part of the practice of law, right? Everybody who can hire a lawyer gets one. And then, of course, we have lawyers for criminal defendants who can't afford to hire a lawyer. So all that is to say, there is some merit to the idea that you need to be able to defend different positions that are different from your own that you may not agree with. That's part of learning to think like a lawyer. It is important to your career. At the same time, the way that it's taught in law schools is sort of like hacking at the connection between you and your values with like a blunt axe, <laughs> right? It's it's not done in a sort of always done, at least in a like thoughtful, skillful way that tries to enable you to continue to engage with your own values and your own priorities and even your own emotional life while also teaching you the skill. It's more like teach you the skill, shut down everything else. So what gets substituted when humans are kind of divorced from their values and their kind of moral or emotional priorities, what you get is a group of people who don't know how to anchor themselves and don't know how to constitute and think about their identity anymore. And so they get very fixated on hierarchy, right? Status, grades, 
who made law review, who didn't, who got an interview with what summer firm, who got an offer afterwards, who got a clerkship, who didn't, who got a fellowship, who didn't, right? Who got a job, who didn't, depending on where you're going and what the legal market's like. You're basically comparing yourself with other people constantly, right? Just think about it. If you don't have your own personal anchors in terms of the things you care about, valuing those things, feeling that they're important, having priorities and values that you try to live by, if you've been sort of divorced from those things through this process of making those emotional or ideological commitments seem non-rigorous, right, and being taught to value logical clarity more than anything else, and you don't know how then to anchor yourself or root yourself, what you're going to do is constantly be looking around for something to hold on to. Right? This is why people often come out of law school with lower self-esteem than when they went in, right? lower self-compassion, lower self-love, and with a much more comparative mindset. And I don't think it's all law school. Obviously, I do think people who are risk-averse and already prone to this way of thinking and already sort of comparative thinkers may go to law school, but law school definitely makes it much worse, right? And people come out of it feeling very competitive with each other and very, very insecure about their own abilities, their own worth, their own value. And I think part of that is because they've been divorced from their own values and their previous sense of identity and shaping them to be able to play any role in an adversarial process. So if that's what happens, if you come out of law school and you're always focused on other people's external reality and you've squashed your own internal reality, you're going to be much more stressed out, right? You're going to feel much less confident. You're going to be constantly looking at other people, right? I see this in all my clients. They all come and tell me that everyone else is working harder than they are, which just can't factually be true because they're all saying the same thing. But because we are not connected to our own internal reality as much, we are really fixated on the external appearances, right, of prestige and of validation. Now, I don't disagree that there are things law schools and firms could do that would help make legal education and practice less triggering, right, for stress and stress coping responses. Because that's the problem with this whole phenomenon I'm describing. When you're not connected to your internal values, when you feel very dependent on external validation and you are constantly comparing yourself to other people, you are just creating an enormous amount of emotional stress. And when you create an enormous amount of emotional stress, what you do is you create very fertile conditions for substance use. The truth about substance use, especially when you're not dealing with a genetic predisposition, is this. Humans use substances to tune out of their current reality. Let's say that again. The reason that humans or other animals, honestly, use substances is to tune out of their current reality, right? It can be booze. It can be drugs. It can also be food, Netflix, shopping, sleeping, sex, gambling, anything that takes you out of your current reality, right? You can use or you can abuse. And I, you know, we even see this in the rat experiments with drugs, rats who are in kind of deprived circumstances where they're just in a cage with nothing else to do, get much more dependent on drugs in their drinking water, right? They put a little cocaine solution in the water, get much more dependent on that and much more interested in it than rats who are in a nice rat little universe right, with places to play and other rats to hang out with and whatever else, right? Rats who have more social context and interaction, are less likely to be interested in drugs. So it's not just about the drug being physically addicting. And we know that, right? Because lots of people go into the hospital and get very intense pain medication, opiates, for 
physical ailments and then, you know, just never take them once they leave, right? The Just the exposure to the opiate, just the exposure to the drug is generally not enough to produce addiction, right? It also has a lot to do with your social circumstances and your emotional life. And when humans are extremely stressed out and when they don't have a solid sense of their inner values and their own worth to hold on to, and when they are constantly thinking about other people as sort of competition or better than they are, and they don't are having trouble connecting to colleagues and to people around them, all of that is really fertile ground for drug use or drinking. So stress leads to more likelihood of substance use, right? More desire to zone out. You may be able to hear it's raining right now, guys. Sorry, that's a little background background uh, context for you. So if you don't know how to deal with stress, you are going to eventually get desperate to escape it. And when you're desperate to escape it, you're going to turn to a substance to help you do that, right? So the equation for anyone, regardless of having gone to law school, is the more stress you are under, the more interested you will be in zoning out, right? In buffering, as I call it, right? Like buffering yourself from the sensation, trying to wrap yourself in something that keeps you kind of feeling better, gets you away from the stress. Anyone, all of us, no matter what kind of education we have, will turn to substances to deal with overwhelming stress. So all of the things that I've described about legal education create this fertile ground, and then they also create the mental processes that create a lot of stress. (laughs) So you've got like a double whammy, basically, in terms of why lawyers often turn to drugs and alcohol, right? They're under an enormous amount of stress, which are created by the way that they have been trained to think, and they don't have as much of a mooring in their own previous kind of values, identity, and life, which would help them find other ways of coping with the stress. So the worst unintended consequence is that substance use produces neurochemical dysregulation that contributes to stress and depression. So you're making it even harder for yourself to feel normal, right? It'd be one thing if having three glasses of wine at night made you feel better and there were no negative consequences. Now, you might still say, well, I don't want to live like that. I want to be able to be present in my life. That's what I think we should all strive to do is be able to be present in our lives, But even if you didn't believe that, if there were no negative consequences, that'd be one thing. But the truth is that the three glasses of wine doesn't only take you out of your present reality. It makes your reality tomorrow even worse, right? It actually creates a neurochemical dysregulation that exacerbates stress and makes it even harder to soothe yourself without going back to the substance, right? That's the short version of it. Ironically, the same mental habits that cause stress are the same mental habits that prevent lawyers who are using drugs or alcohol from getting clean or changing jobs, right? Catastrophizing, thinking everything's going terribly, I'm about to be found out at any minute, this is going to destroy my career, right? All those thoughts about your own use, they're not actually motivating. They actually just create more stress that you will then use substances to cope with. Pessimism, right? Nothing, this is not going to work. There's no way to get better. Everyone around me is also drinking. I read that article, all other lawyers are using drugs too, right? This is just how it is to be a lawyer and I can't change it. Those same thought patterns that create the stress that makes you want to use also will lead you to believe that there's nothing you can do about your using. And insecurity and adequacy, right? Shaming yourself. There's something wrong with me. Why can't I function without drinking or using drugs? Everyone else can do it, but I can't, 
right? I'm unworthy. I'm flawed. I'm broken. There's something wrong with me. That kind of thinking is what, again, creates the stress that makes you more likely to want to use. And then when you have the same thoughts about your usage, then it makes it even harder to stop. So if a stress and the lack of ability to manage your stress, right, is what produces substance use and abuse, then understanding how to manage your stress is part of what will help you stop. So there's two levels to trying to reduce your use, right? One is we try to deal with the root source, right? What is actually causing your use in the first place is your overwhelming stress that you don't know how to process or deal with any other way. So using the tools that I teach in all the other podcasts to reduce your daily stress level will actually automatically make drinking or using drugs less appealing and feel less compelling because you won't feel the need to escape your life so much, right? When you know how to deal with your stress as it comes up, you don't just have to power through on adrenaline and then end up at home at night desperate to escape your own brain or looking for comfort. But the other thing is that now drinking and using is also something of a habit, right? Whatever the original impulse was, that original stress you were dealing with, now you also have this habit of usage, right? And so you have to learn how to break that habit. So that's what I want to teach you a little bit in today's podcast. So as you've heard me say a million times already, external circumstances don't cause our feelings. Our thoughts cause our feelings. And the desire to drink is just a feeling. It's a desire. You might also call it an urge. Same difference. Okay, it's a physical sensation in the body that is caused by a thought you have about drinking or using. This is so important, you guys. We think that our desire to drink or our desire to use is some kind of gut-level instinctive thing, right, that we can't manage or control and that we just have to white-knuckle through it. That's the only way. I'm here to tell you that's 100% wrong. The desire to drink, the urge, again, this podcast is aimed and we're talking about people who are not physically dependent in such a way that they need medical intervention, right? If you are a full-blown alcoholic, you actually physically need alcohol (laughs) to just normalize and get through the day. And that's why it's important to get medical treatment if you're in that state because you can't safely detox yourself. I'm not talking to those people. I'm talking to those of you who have like a glass of wine or two every night, right? Maybe you have a little more, three or four, you have a little more wine than you want every night. You have a little more booze than you want every night. You smoke a joint like more often than you want. You don't feel great. You wish you could stop. You absolutely can. For you, the desire to use the substance is just a feeling caused by a thought, okay? Your thought might be something like, it would be relaxing to have a glass of wine, I deserve this beer. Smoking pot is the only way I can stop worrying about work. And I've earned this. Fuck it. Who cares? (laughs) Right? That's a classic one. Any of those thoughts can create the urge, create the desire to have a drink. And that desire, that urge, you may physically feel it in your body like a craving. Absolutely. It's just a feeling like anything else. When you think the partner on this case hates me and wants to fire me, you feel stress in your body. You feel anxiety. That thought creates that feeling. The same thing is true for drinking. I deserve this beer. It would be relaxing to have this glass of wine. Smoking this joint is the only way I can stop worrying about work. Those thoughts will create a physical desire, a physical sensation of an urge to use the substance in your body. You want to reduce your drinking or use. And by the way, this works for anything, right? This works for if you don't drink or do drugs, but you eat like a whole box of pasta every night, right? Refined carbs can sometimes have a similar effect. Or you go online and play poker, right? You gamble. 
or you online shop for 10 pairs of shoes you're never going to wear. All of those are activities humans engage in to trigger a burst of dopamine to try to basically self-medicate their stress. So what I'm teaching you here, and I'm talking about this urge, this desire, works for anything you're doing to kind of zone out, even watching Netflix. So if you want to reduce whatever you're doing, there are a couple of things you can practice. So number one, get really familiar with your favorite go-ahead thoughts. That's what I call the thoughts that motivate you to drink or use or shop or whatever, especially when you've sort of told yourself you're trying not to, right? And then the temptation comes up. The thoughts that create the urge for you are going to be pretty consistent if you just pay attention to them. So before you even start trying to change your behavior, just practice writing down what you're thinking when you pour a glass or you roll a joint or you take a pill or you go look at the Nordstrom shoe section online, (laughs) whatever it is you're doing. Just write down what you're thinking before you even try to do anything else. Get really curious about what's happening in your brain and get really familiar with it. The second thing is to get really familiar with what an urge feels like in your body. You've habituated yourself to always answering an urge, right? That's what the habit is. Feel an urge to drink, have the glass of wine. That's the reward loop in your brain, right? Whatever you're using, booze, drugs, sugar, shopping, you formed a habit loop. You have the thought, you feel the urge, and then you satisfy the urge with the substance or activity of your choice, right? So it's thought, feeling, action. That's what's happening, right? You have a thought, it creates the feeling of an urge or the desire to use, and then you satisfy that urge. And that's what's created that habit loop for you. So being able to change your habit means getting comfortable feeling an urge without answering it, right? You can hear the call and not take the action, but that requires being willing to feel the urge. So allowing an urge and feeling it is totally different than white knuckling it. When you white knuckle something, you are resisting it, right? Like you wish the urge wasn't there. You want it to go away as soon as possible. You think your life would be better without the urge, right? You can feel it in your body when you pay attention. You're resisting. You tense up when you have the urge. This is what happens generally when people try to reduce their substance use is they try to white knuckle it, right? They don't have any of these tools. They just decide, I should stop. This isn't good for me. I want to stop. I want to cut back. But then when the urge comes up, they don't know what to do. And so they just try to like hold on through sheer willpower. Some people that works for a lot of people it doesn't. And the problem there is that it takes so much energy to white knuckle through resisting something. When you allow an urge, you're not resisting it. You are being curious about it. You allow it to exist without wishing it would go away or distracting yourself. Because the truth is, it's just a feeling. It's just a sensation in your body. It's not actually going to kill you. It's not even really going to hurt you. And it's just caused by your thoughts. Right? You can see the difference between telling yourself, I have this urge to drink. There must be something wrong with me. Maybe I'm an alcoholic. I, you know, this is so fucked up. I can't go a day without drinking. I feel physical urge to drink. Like there's obviously something wrong with me. All those thoughts are going to create an enormous amount of stress for you, which then you're going to want to drink to deal with. If you can just be curious, right? So different to think, oh, Well, when I have a thought about drinking, that creates a feeling, a desire in my body. Well, what does that feel like? I'm curious. Let me try to experience this desire and just see what it feels like and if I can maybe handle it better than I thought I could. That's a totally different emotional state to be in when experiencing an urge. 
That's the difference between resisting and allowing. So a good practice is to get really curious with yourself about what is the urge or the desire feel like in your body. Is it fast? Is it slow? Is it hot or cold? Big or small? Heavy or light? Right? What does it feel like? So one thing I have my clients do is keep track until they get to 100 unanswered urges. doesn't have to be in a row. This is not like get to 100 in a row and if you screw up, you start over. It's just how many times can you start practicing the new habit of feeling an urge and not responding to it, right? You've practiced the urge of feeling the urge and then responding to it by taking the action, by drinking or using or shopping or whatever, so many times. That habit is really well established in your neural pathways. So what you want to do is you start building the opposite habit, having an urge, allowing it, and not taking the action. And you just count up to 100 times. By 100 times of doing that, you're in a much better position to keep doing it right? You've started to build that new neural pathway. You've proved to yourself that you're someone who can feel an urge and not act on it. And over time, the urge gets less and less. But the urge does not get less when you are resisting and white knuckling. The urge only gets less when you practice allowing it without acting on it. So here's the last thing I want to say about this topic, right? I've given you three things to practice. Number one, Get really familiar with what your thoughts are that create the feeling of desire and the urge in your body. Number two, get really familiar with what the urge feels like. Describe it to yourself. Practice paying attention to it. Number three, practice allowing the urge without acting on it, right? Notice the difference in your body and your mind when you are resisting versus when you are allowing. And keep a list of all the times that you've allowed the urge to be there without acting on it right? And see if you can get to 100. So those are three important things for you to practice as a start. But I want to say one last thing about the topic in general. If you're concerned about your use, you've probably tried to cut back before and it hasn't worked or it only worked temporarily. So your brain is going to want to make this another opportunity to set an unrealistic perfectionistic goal and then beat yourself up (laughs) if you don't achieve it. That's what brains do. That is way too much pressure, okay? Your past does not predict your future. That's true of anything. The most powerful thing you can do when it comes to substance use, or really to anything you want to change, is to entertain the idea that your future could be different from your past. You are already a different person than you were the last time you tried this. You've learned new ideas and tools just listening to this podcast, right? You don't have to repeat your past actions or reactions. Practice being curious instead of judgmental. Right? Watch your brain when it wants to catastrophize and tell you that if you ever drink or use again, you can't succeed in cutting back. That simply isn't true, right? This isn't a zero-sum game. The more you practice these skills, the more you'll be able to start to make different choices. I promise this is true. I work with clients every day who have made massive changes in their lives they never believed possible. And I've done it in my own life too. The only thing that will keep you from changing is believing that you can't. That's what we've learned in these tools. What you believe comes true because it makes you feel a certain way and it makes you act a certain way. That is true about changing yourself. You believe that you can never be different than you have been. Nothing will ever change for you. The single most important thing you can do, even before you try practicing any of those tools, is to practice believing that it's possible for you to change, that it's possible for you to take different action than you have in the past. 
So if your use or anything else I've talked about today is something you're worried about, I want to tell you about a new program I'm offering. It's called the Lawyer Stress Solution Small Group Edition. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's a small group. <laughs> it's a way to work with me and learn the same tools to get more done, to feel better, to increase your confidence, and reduce your stress. But it's in a small group setting. So you get some individual attention, you learn all the same tools, but it's at a lower price point than my private coaching and you get a supportive group of new friends too. It's all entirely confidential, but it can be so empowering to have a group of people who are working with you who understand what you're going through, and it shows you that you're not so different and you're not alone. And I hear that from my clients all the time. I'm the only one who has this problem. Everyone else is doing well. I don't know what's wrong with me. Nothing's wrong with you. Right? It's one thing you hear that from me. It's another thing to connect to and create new bonds with other women lawyers who are experiencing the same thoughts that you have. Here's the catch. Registration is only open this week. So if you're interested, you should hustle on over to www.redesignyourmind.com. It's redesignyourmind.com forward slash small group. Or you can just go to www.thelawyerstresssolution, name of the podcast, right? Forward slash small group. Either way, we're going to be talking about work-life balance. We're going to be talking about how to get more productive and efficient, how to feel better spending time on the things that you care about, whether it's friends or family or hobbies, how to create some of those boundaries, how to deal with the stress that causes you to want to drink or smoke a joint or take a pill or shop or go on Netflix or whatever else, right? And how to feel more compassion for yourself and more confidence, right? How to go into work in the morning knowing that you know how to do a good job and that you are good at what you do and that you deserve to be there and can succeed. That's all any of us want in our career, right? So check it out. If you have any questions, you can always drop me a line. There's a link to contact me on all the pages of my websites. And give these tools a try and, you know, let me know how it goes for you. I'd like to hear. I'll talk to you again next week. If you're loving what you're learning in the podcast, you have got to come check out The Clutch. The Clutch is my feminist coaching community for all things Unfuck Your Brain. It's where you can get individual help applying all these concepts I teach to your own life and learning how to do thought work to blow your own mind. It's where you can learn new coaching tools not shared on the podcast that will change your life even more. It's where you can hang out and connect over all things thought work with other podcast chickens just like you and me. It's my favorite place on earth and it will change everything. I guarantee it. Come join us at www.unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash the clutch. Or you can just text your email address to 347-934-8861. If you text your email address to that number, we'll text you right back with a link to check out everything you need to know about The Clutch, 347-934-8861. Or again, just go online to www.unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash The Clutch. I cannot wait to see you there.